Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. This is the number one daily radio show for realtors looking for a no BS, authentic, real-time coaching experience. What's really working in today's market, how to generate more leads, make more money, and have more time for what you love in your life. And now your hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Welcome back. Today we're talking about the four deadly deal-killing mistakes agents are making in this market. Now, the reason that we, uh, I think, focused in on only four mistakes Mm -hmm. is because these are the types of mistakes that are the easiest to avoid, and if you make them, we'll blow up any deal. That's right. So negotiating has indeed become more complicated now that your markets have shifted. Currently, there is a mixture of homes that are still selling quickly with competing offers, oftentimes going over list price. But there are also homes that are taking longer to sell with perhaps zero or even only one offer after a lot more days on the market. So we have a mixture. The market is not moving in lockstep like it has been in past years. Right. And the, the, what you have to know in a market like this is I'm actually having uh, a memory of a call I had with someone in our EXP Realty Group last week. This is a very competent, skilled agent. She had, if I remember correctly, seven or eight listings in this particular market in Florida. Um, and they were all great listings. Mm-hmm. And they are all motivated sellers. It was just, I went down with a few of them and uh, she proved to me after two or three that she was completely pre-qualified. Uh, she knew what she was doing, very competent. But her listings weren't selling. And what had happened was, long story short, was she was in an area that was affected adversely by the hurricanes. Though so her um, you know, real estate, her product was all standing tall. The geographic area that she was living had been, um, you know, largely devastated to the extent that people weren't traveling there. Sure. And a lot of people that lived there moved, you know, it was mm-hmm. that, that kind of situation, really mm-hmm. sad situation. But she was, she had these great listings. She wasn't getting any showings based on the comps. And this is where right. it gets complicated. Okay. It based on the comps, everything was priced, not just a little bit, really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the days in the market obviously was extending all these other sort of, you know, forward looking indicators as to far as what the health of a market is. Uh, or a particular listing, it, they were all pointing down. But based on her historical uh, reference points, her CMAs, she was absolutely positioned perfectly in the market. Everything looked normal. Right. And so what I had her do on this call is we went and I had her do some quick uh, absorption studies mm-hmm. of similar properties. So what does that mean? I wanted to know, for example, she gave me a – I'll make it up because I don't remember the exact example. But it was a $400,000 condo. And it was, say, you know, the building was 10 years old and it had, uh, you know, maybe two or three blocks from the beach. She's actually, I do remember that. It was a mile from the beach. So pretty much all the things that someone's going to look for in a condo that's in this particular community, in this particular part of Florida, this, you know, that was the prototypical example. Sounds desirable. <clears throat> that's right. So where it got interesting was, is I wanted her, and we, her the natural inclination is, well, you got to cut the price. You got to go after the price. But that... Though that is the easy button, and ultimately that's the cure-all for anything that's not selling, it's not always the right thing to tell a seller, especially if, for example, what really was going on was, it. yes, price obviously induces more interest, but it also could be the bad advice for that seller because of the fact that what she needed to do and what she learned from doing the absorption thing with me on the call was that the days in the market in her market had gone from roughly you know 32 days now based on what it uh, was selling to over five months. So realistically, a lowering of the price would have uh, obviously caused it to sell slightly quicker, 
but she was still going to be looking at months and months and months of this uh, property being for sale, same with all of her listings. She had not communicated that to her sellers. And so her sellers had unrealistic expectations as how, how you know, yes. basically is what was going on in the market. So those are the types of thoughts that you're going to need to start adjusting to. And it all comes back to having a skills-based approach. Same goes if you're on the buyer side of things as well, too. You know, it's not a buyer's market in most of the country because using that same gal as an example, most of those listings she had were paid off. There's no fire sales going on there. Those sure. sellers can decide to VRBO them or rent them or just keep them vacant. It doesn't really matter. So you're going to have to know how to actually uh, traverse a marketplace that's in transition like this because that is what's going on. And we're in a really yeah. stark transition. And I have to say, Julie, in all the years that you and I have been in real estate, the only times I've seen, well, first of all, this will be historically one of the toughest years uh, in real estate since 2009, probably. In terms of number of sales, for right. sure. Right, in terms of number of sales, and uh, there's going to be less than 4 million sales and something less than 700,000 new construction homes. This is what will be most likely the bottom of the market. Mm -hmm. But here's the good news. The people, this, this also represents the core of the market. So we now have a really good understanding based on this year's activity that every single year, no matter how bad of a year it is, this is as bad as it gets, and yeah. there's still going to be 4 million transactions. Right. And how many do you need, listeners? Right? Exactly. You don't need 4 million. So there are still plenty of transactions happening. But we do see these mistakes coming up, and I think that you hit the nail on the head with kind of our pre-number one, right. <laughs> number one half, which is the setting of expectations, because many of you are not used to doing these types of analysis where you find that, you know, it's not one month or one week on the market. Now it's three, four, five months on the market. And how you speak with a seller is very different when you're setting that expectation that we probably aren't going to sell in the first weekend, two weekends, maybe even the first 30 days. We, we might not have multiple offers. And the first offer we get probably will be our best offer. And that could be 90 days from now. That's and, very different than the typical choose an offer, right? And agents, you don't have experience, and most of you, 99% of you, don't have experience in a market like this. But neither do your sellers. Certainly your buyers don't either. Sure. So most everyone, including yourself, that's in real estate right now, either as a consumer or a practitioner like yourselves, you don't have any experience with a market where, that's in transition, let alone in some cases, as her example I think probably becoming somewhat of a buyer's market. So don't be surprised if you're going to have to educate every single person you come across as far as what their expectations should be about this this new market that we're in. And that's an, for example in our uh, you know premier coaching program. I know you're probably about to say this, but we have a 12-week seller communication uh, plan. And it's so funny that I remember not so long ago. If you guys had stumbled across a 12-week seller communication plan, you wouldn't even understand why you would need 12 weeks oh, to communicate with, with Exactly. So they, can, they can sell it a second time in 12 weeks. Yeah, right? that's exactly. We, so we, yeah. we came up with a new program for the old market where it was a 12-second communication plan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, but that's the new reality is you're going to have to start adjusting your mindset and then educating your buyers and your sellers about what they should expect as well. And it's so if before things took two weeks to sell, now in your market, it might take two months or three months to sell. That doesn't mean that you have there's something wrong with you or something wrong with your market or something wrong with the product. It means that that's just how long things take to sell. That's right. And keeping in mind that that's not going to be the case in every single neighborhood and every single price range in your town. You may go on one appointment that sounds just like that tonight, and then tomorrow's appointment, maybe because it's in more of a first-time buyer neighborhood, Maybe that does still have 10 days on the market, and maybe you will get multiple offers, but you've really got to study your subject property a lot more intensely 
so that you don't cookie cutter everything like you were able to get away with in the previous market. Yep. So moving on to official mistake number one, and this is an easy one to fix. I'm talking to both listing agents and buyer's agents here. Lack of communication from both the buyer's agent and the listing agent. If you want to win, you need a meeting of the minds. The definition of negotiation is the reaching of a mutual agreement that all parties are satisfied with. But you've got to actually talk to each other to make this happen. So I've got two examples of that. Now she gave now her examples. I want you to focus. They're primarily focusing on listing agents because listing agents, uh, you for the most part have been able to be somewhat abusive to the buyer's agents. Those yes. days are over. That is exactly right. Okay, example number one. Listing agents, if you want to receive offers that are easy to say yes to, put the desired terms into the agent-to-agent comments in the MLS and or, here's a thought, actually call the buyer's agents back who haunt you looking for the details that will help them actually win. Remember, they are trying to sell your listing. So yes, I would agree with that. Days of abusing buyer's agents should be over. And example number two, buyer's agents actually read the comments in the MLS and counsel your buyers to comply with as many of those terms as possible if they want to actually win, not just write an offer. If there are no comments, you've got to find the listing agent and ask them, other than price, we can assume price is important, of course, but other than price, what will it take to win? For example, does the seller want a specific closing date or a lease back or to keep the fancy chandelier? Find out and see if you can deliver a contract that they will accept. I, I will uh, never forget a coaching client called me in a panic. They're like, I, I just wrote this killer offer, right? It was like 10000 over list price. It had all the terms and conditions, and I wrote it for a two-week close, but we lost out. Well, why did you lose out? Call the listing agent, find out. Guess what? The seller didn't want a two-week close. You thought that that was a rockin' option, and your buyers would have enjoyed that, but you have to know it's important to both sides, not just to one side, and not be assumptive. What surprises everybody, nearly everybody at this point, is that very rarely is price the most important thing when you're really selling anything. I mean, especially real estate. What people sure. will pay for is convenience more than anything. Mm-hmm. So you've got, Julie's giving you some advanced coaching tips there. If you're on the buyer side of things, call the listing agent. Now you might have an inexperienced listing agent that's not gonna feel comfortable sort of coaching you a little bit how to write a winning offer. Yeah, uh, you know, that happens. So you're going to have to be very inquisitive and ask questions and do drill down and find out what it's going to take. Use Julie's little script there. Find out what it's going to take to win the listing. What What is really important to the sellers so that I can essentially help you um, work with them and deliver to them an offer that will be acceptable in first, you know, first go around. So we can both hear yes. Yes. Right? Okay, so mistake number two, and this happens in all markets, but especially in a changing market, and that is some version of this. No lender's letter or proof of cash or a weak lender's letter or a boilerplate lender's letter. If your buyer has financing, their lender's letter needs to show ideally that they are not just pre-approved, which is better than pre-qualified, but not just pre-approved, but loan committed. It needs to state that their ratios, credit, employment, and down payment are all adequate and verified. And additionally, this goes a long way. I've had many listing agents tell me this. The lender should call the listing agent and basically vouch for the buyer's ability to close. Good lenders are doing this for, on behalf of their buyers, they're saying, yes, we're endorsing them. They are contingent only on identifying a property, maybe on appraisal, but they are loan committed. So remember, there's three stages to getting your loan. You're pre-qualified, that's just a conversation. Pre-approved is you're basically through underwriting, 
but then uh, actually loan committed is you're ready to rumble. And again, if you're a Premier Coaching member, you can use what we call the ultimate addendum to avoid this mistake. That's the ultimate cheat code. So if Premier Coaching members in Premier Coaching, there's something that you can search in the little search widget inside Harris Learning. You can search for something called the ultimate addendum. What the ultimate addendum is, originally it was designed for listing agents to basically uh, you know, make sure that the buyer's agent's buyers had actually been approved and it wasn't just some boilerplate Mickey Mouse letter from, you know, Rocket Mortgage or something. It was actually a real lender's letter that didn't have any subjects to's or added conditions where the lender had actually done a three merge credit report, verified employment, verified assets, done all the things necessary to get the loan um, approved. And the only thing the lender's letter can be actually contingent on, if you even want to call it that, would be the house that they're purchasing being, um, you know, the appraisal happening. And I'm going to give you, listen to what I'm saying, guys. Lenders are trained and coached, not by us, by the way, to not spend any time or virtually no time on the file until the buyer's in contract on a house. Well, even, even in many cases, until they've made it through inspections. Yes. So most lenders and that you're dealing with, even your favorite lender, they're not doing anything other than a cursory, maybe they're checking with one credit bureau. They're probably not doing much beyond that. Maybe and, the application and that's about it. Right. And they're giving you a you know boilerplate lender's letter. And then you're finding out after you've given up all your nights and weekends, you know, 90 days later and you finally found a house, everyone's in contract. Then you discover that the buyer can't actually qualify for this reason or that reason. You guys get it? You're going to have to become very, very particular about who you're working with on the lender side. And really, the ultimate addendum is designed for you to have a stopgap there so you can be assured that the lender actually did their job. And again, it's essentially the ultimate addendum is a addendum that lists when you receive a, a contract listing agents. It's something that you counter back to the buyer side. All of it, there, all terms are acceptable, price, condition, location, everything. You're ready to go. Um, but you want to counter back if the lender's letter that they sent you in the first place wasn't actually substantive and make them essentially uh, go through the ultimate addendum and have the lender do their work. The smart move as a listing agent is to actually stick the ultimate addendum and the agent to agent comments in the MLS and say all lender letters must be essentially meet these criteria as provided in the ultimate addendum. That's right. One of the biggest issues we have right now with the changing market and higher interest rates and low inventory, which means it takes longer to find a house, is that the lender letter that somebody you know, presents today may not actually be valid when they find a house 90 days from now when the rates are higher, their payment is higher. So the ultimate addendum even says things like, all, all these things have been checked and are adequate for the purchase of this home at this price, right? right? Because that by itself, maybe the buyer didn't do anything wrong, it's just that their payment now is so high and their ratios are out of whack and now they no longer are able to buy at that price. But right? mistake number two is one of the biggest mistakes. That when you hear people, uh, agents that are sort of like bemoaning the deal that they just spent all this time on blowing up, it's almost always because they essentially uh, worked with a buyer that actually wasn't approved or frankly couldn't get financing. It because they trusted Larry, the lazy loan officer. You guys yeah. get it? And it blows up on the 11th hour because it finally makes it through underwriting. And then we finally check the credit and all the other things. And it's like three days before closing or three hours before closing. And lo and behold, they're not qualified. By the way, we did a podcast called uh, My Buyer Got Denied. How do I fix that? Oh, yeah, we did. So maybe we'll dust where, that Where we spent an hour making fun of Larry, the lazy lender. <laughs> Poor Larry. All okay. Right, <laughs> mistake number three. Mistake number three, not being specific about seller's concessions. This is not your fault. You guys are not used to asking for, much less getting, seller's concessions. 
Now, this ranges from asking for a specific type of home warranty for a specific price to asking for thousands of dollars towards buyer's closing costs. Again, seller's concessions are what we're talking about. Now, the first issue is easy. You check the box on the offer stating the buyer wants a home warranty. Remember the thing that you used to cross out when you weren't able to get that when you were competing? And then you state which warranty, that it's for one year and it'll cost X amount of dollars. By All the, the warranty companies have this on their websites. And by the way, the uh, commission on those is, in some cases, up to 100 bucks. So if you yeah. are the one that initiated the sale for the American Home Shield warranty or whatever, you actually, in addition to your normal commissions, are going to receive a, com a commission at closing from the home warranty company. There you go. Something at, they, they didn't know about before. It doesn't happen at closing usually. It happens after closing. After closing. Yeah, but nonetheless. Flows through closing. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay, now the second issue is more tricky. If you're asking the seller to contribute, for example, $5,000 towards buyer's closing costs, you have to state, after speaking with your buyer and their lender, what those funds will actually go to. Buying down the interest rate and paying prepaid costs like taxes, homeowners insurance, prepaid HOA deposits, those are all appropriate things to apply that money to. Ask for a good faith estimate so you can be specific. Note, some lenders, Larry, will inflate costs when they know the seller is contributing thousands to the deal if you are not specific where the money is supposed to go to. In other words, the lender, if you, for example, get the seller uh, to contribute 5000 towards your buyer's closing costs, and they wanted to buy down the interest rates by an eighth of a point. Well, Larry, the lazy lender, might actually make it so that maybe in reality to buy down the interest rate, it was $3,500, but now it's actually $5,000, that kind because of thing. Because they can. Because they can, because they know the money's there. So you're going to, this, guys, look, I hope you, hopefully you're realizing that in a market like this, where you're really going to have the power and the leverage, where you frankly are going to have the ultimate, you know, you all want to be the most dominant agents in your marketplace. The way you earn that is by essentially, um, you know, helping a lot of people in a market like this. On the other side of this, when you've been transactional and you've sold a lot of houses, when you've actually done things other agents weren't willing to do because they didn't take the time to learn what you are learning, you're going to be the one that's the most dominant agent in your marketplace. That's the beauty of a market like this because it reshuffles the deck and you can come out on top based on what you learned, but mostly what the what actions you take with what you've learned. Don't be surprised in a market like this. And, you know, this is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. If you end up having to do everyone else's job or at least be mindful of everyone else's job, that it's actually kind of smart. You shouldn't be assuming if you're on the listing side that the buyer agent did anything correctly with regards to the lender letter. Be yeah. pleasantly surprised if they have. Don't assume that the lender actually has done uh, any of their verifications. Don't assume, don't assume. Go through every single one of your transactions and look and play whack-a-mole intentionally. Look for reason or look for problems, not just that are on your side of the transaction, but on other sides of the transaction. And don't be surprised if you will find your if you find yourself having to in some cases, not, you know, literally doing the work for the other agent, helping them That's understand true. the process. And, and be kind about it. Yeah, and be kind and respectful about it because they've never been in a market like this before and they don't have a clue what to do. And the person that they go to, office manager, broker, they might not know what to do either. They might not know how to actually sell real estate in a market like this. Yes. And by the way, it is not your transaction coordinator's job to know all of this either. They You're, won't know. They won't know. Do not assume that they're going to do all these things that we're talking about. This is your responsibility, buyers, agents, and listing agents. Our uh, notes from today's podcast, like every podcast, are below. So if you're on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, there they are. Scroll down. They're all right there. Um, and also there's links for you to join Premier Coaching. This is just training. The best we can do in 30 minutes 
Every single day is just going to be training. If you want real drill down coaching, you're going to want to join Premier Coaching. You can join Premier Coaching for free. Uh, just click the link below or just go to premiercoaching.com. All right, mistake number four. I put three into this bucket. These are escalation clauses, escape clauses, appraisal waivers. Oh, my. <laughs> These are grouped together because the mistake is basically the same. There are two levels to this. The first one starts with the agent understanding these clauses or waivers in the first place and what they actually mean. And the second part has to do with the buyer's and seller's understanding. So if you can't explain it yourself as an agent, it should never be in the contract. And there are a lot of your continuing ed and stuff like this. So they're starting to add some explanations and some classes about how escalation clauses and escape clauses work. They're a little bit different state to state. So make sure you're taking that education. But example number one, let's talk about escalation clauses. Uh, if your contract states that your buyer will go, for example, $1,000 above the highest and best offer. Now, that assumes that you found out that you're competing. But let's say that you are, and it says $1,000 above the highest and best offer. It also needs to state not to exceed X amount of dollars. Otherwise, when your buyer finds out the price they have to beat, they might not be able to qualify or be willing to deliver. They might not have the money to deliver that. And thus, you've wasted everyone's time. Note, make sure the buyer is actually qualified to go that high. You might be taking some money out of their down payment, thus unqualifying them to meet the escalation to go over list price. I've seen this, this manifests itself as deals that were in contract based on an escalation clause. The buyer's all happy, the agent's happy they won. And then when they go back to the lender, the lender's like, oh, hang on a second, you're going 20,000 over list. What are you doing for your down payment now? Okay. Right. And then the deal dies and everybody gets mad. But Julie, think about the insanity of all the things that we've had to talk about in just the last 21 minutes, right? I know. So we've gone from essentially talking about agents knowing how to explain days in the market being protracted by months now, right? Right. And now we're also having to explain to them how to write escalation clauses. Yeah. Because in your markets, guys, in a market like what we're experiencing, you're going to have guess what? Neighborhoods, mind you only be streets and neighborhoods, where it's going to be a boiling hot seller's market. And then mm -hmm. five minutes away, you're going to have it where it's going to be absolutely crickets. the exact opposite, crickets. <laughs> that is the nature of a market like this. And it is frankly fun and exciting. And where the opportunity is, is when you know how to actually get the deals done and the other agents don't, you're going to be able to walk in oftentimes and pick up an expired listing. You're going to walk into an opportunity where the FISBO actually wasn't that interested in FISBOing in the first place. Their previous agent just didn't know how to get the house sold. Those types of things. And I'll say this as well. Those of you who fed and lived off uh, high on the hog with uh, centers of influence and past client deals, what you're going to discover is your center of influence and past client um, you know, your list, they're going to want to uh, meet with and interview more than one agent in a market like this. So you cannot be assumptive just because you've known them forever, you're friends with them or whatever. You can't just be assumptive you're going to get the business. The assumption is what's going to kill you in a market like this. That's right. And you will end up paying the price. So example number two, escape clauses. These come in many flavors, but the most common is a home sale contingency. I know you guys haven't even thought about home sale contingencies an interesting thing in today's market, Tim, is that there are uh, buyers coming to open houses without their agents who are very interested in the house. The listing agent in the open house says, well, where's your agent? They say, my agent won't show me anything until my house is closed. So they're not even really contingent on their home selling. They're contingent on it closing. But because the whole world believes that it's impossible to get any of that in a contract, the buyers have had to be proactive to find their house and they're almost homeless. So, so you have to be careful with that. Again, you just said a bunch of stuff that <laughs> yeah. I bet you most of the agents don't understand. So you can work with a buyer that has a house to sell 
and I hope, frankly, leans back into the experience of the listing agent, yep. you can get them to allow your buyer to go into contract on the on their listing without your you know your buyer's home actually have being sold. It provided they put in an escape clause in which Julie's about to read to you right now. Shocking, but true. Okay, so uh, the most common is a home sale contingency, and it sounds something like this. Seller accepts the contract with the following contingency. Their home will still be marketed, and if an equal uh, offer with no home sale contingency is presented, the original buyer will be given 72 hours to remove their home sale contingency and proceed to close or become a backup offer. In other words, we're accepting your contract. We know you're contingent on home sale. Your home isn't sold yet. We're going to take your offer, but we, the sellers, would prefer not to have a home sale contingency. So we're going to continue to try and get somebody who's not contingent. And if we do, and the rest of the deal is the same, we're going to give you 72 hours to remove your home sale contingency or become a backup offer or go away. But also put a limit on it, Julie. You know, if you, so if you accept as a listing agent a home sale contingency offer, technically the house is uh, con, you know, obviously in contract, contingent on that buyer's house selling. You're going to want to ask questions about the nature of, frankly, the sellability of that particular property. Or if property. it's even listed. Or if it's exactly. But also, you're going to want to talk to that buyer's lender and ask that buyer's lender if they can purchase you know, your listing without the, the sale of their present home. Don't assume the buyer agent did it because they did ask that mm-hmm. question because they probably didn't. And don't assume that the lender even thought of that because they probably didn't. And what you'll discover a lot of times is the buyer actually could purchase the next house without the sale of their present home. So you're going to have to get into it. You're going to have to do some homework on it. And let's say it is presently listed. And let's say they do have to sell the house prior to closing on the next one. They need the proceeds. You're going to have to do the work and find out whether or not they're pricing the house correctly. You're going to have to maybe even go preview the listing that, you know, you're the buyer for your listing's house and find out whether, frankly, it's got good condition location. Otherwise, you're going to just essentially obligate your seller to a buyer that will never be able to perform. Now, I'm going to give you some advanced coaching on this. There's a double-edged sword to accepting a home sale contingency depending on your MLS. Now, first, I'm going to start from the buyer agent perspective. If you get a seller to accept a home sale contingency, chances are in your MLS, the status of the, MLS, of the listing has to be changed in the MLS. It'll go from active to contingent on home sale. Now, for the sake of what's best for your buyer, not the list, not the seller, but for your buyer, you want that to happen. Mm-hmm. In some markets, the, act, the listing will stay active even though it has a home sale contingency. They only have to change something in the agent-to-agent remarks. But from, your, from a buyer's agent perspective, you want the status to be changed to contingent on home sale because the showings will stop on that listing. And then the probability of your buyer then having to be forced to remove their home sale contingency and maybe not even being able to buy the house will go away because that listing agent, um, you guys get the point. So if you remove, the, if the status changes to contingent on home sale, the showings are going to drop off. Now on the listing side of things, you guys have to obviously protect your seller. So if you're going to accept a home sale contingency and your MLS does require that you change the status to contingent of home sale, you're going to have to put a very, you're going to have, like I was giving you an example of a second ago, be very rigid about the listing or that, you know, that buyer's house. Make sure it's priced right, conditions right. Make sure, frankly, the buyer's agent is a competent listing agent. Do the work before you obligate yourself. And even then, make it so they have a limited amount of time to sell the house regardless of whether you received another written verified offer anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay? That way you're not in contract forever exactly. waiting on somebody's house to sell. The most challenging ones are when the, content, the home sale contingency 
is own a house in a different market that you're yep. not familiar with, you know, that might have different market conditions and things like that. Um, the, the things that when we do see home sale contingencies getting accepted, you know, you have a lot higher likelihood of that happening when you're writing that on a house that's been on the market for a while. Yeah. That doesn't have any competing offers. Or, or something that has a slight condition location. Something uh, unusual. Or, right. Maybe it's a little bit more rural in an area that's mostly, you know, not something like that. Exactly. So, you know, not every deal is the same, right? Okay, our third and final example today is appraisal waivers. This is fine if the buyer is all cash. And remember that at least 25% of recent sales have been closing in all cash. But if there's financing involved, the lender better be okay with waiving the uh, appraisal. Otherwise, you've got your buyer into contract on a home that the lender might not approve them for if it doesn't appraise. If it's an, if it's an appraisal gap your buyer is guaranteeing, make sure they've got the cash to support that and up to how much before they're dipping into their down payment money and wrecking their own deal. Now, why would a lender uh, waive the appraisal? Because remember, the lender's an effect effectively a partner on that property. It's if, frankly, the strength of the buyer in the amount of uh, down payment. So if the buyer's That's a really right. strong uh, buyer, great credit, and the rest of it, uh, and they're putting down a lot, let's assume it's 50%, then maybe the lender won't care if the house appraises or not. But I have to tell you guys, just be wary weary of this. That's going to be incredibly rare yeah. unless the person's all cash. Because most lenders are going to be extra cautious right now. They have all kinds of overlays that are out there, mm -hmm. and they're not going to be taking any risk whatsoever. It's getting much more conservative. So you, the key here on this one is because many of you got used to writing in appraisal waivers and the market has changed and the lending conditions have changed, they're tightening things up, don't assume that just because you got it accepted that it's closable. Now, if you're on the listing side of things, you obviously want to go back and review these four points. The the notes for today's show are down below. You definitely want to join Premier Coaching. You're going buyers and seller, buyer, you know, buyers agents, listing agents. You're going to have to really get your game on to understand what's actually happening in your market. You're going to have to learn how to do not just CMAs, but full-on absorption studies of every single listing that you consider. And when you're going on a, you know, when you're frankly going on a competitive listing, and you are, you know, obviously going to show up with the greatest CMA you've got. But the CMA is a look into the past, and it's only a glance of what the present competition is. You need to basically do take it to the next level. Otherwise, you're going to set false expectations for the seller. But even then, if you're competing with two or three other agents, and they're just blowing sunshine up the seller's skirt, and the seller is going to be walking around like if it's still a hot seller's market, and you're the only one that's frankly has the ability to, you know, the knowledge to, to tell them the truth. The other agents don't really even know what's going on in the market. They're just, you know, riding on hopium mm -hmm. like if it was still a hot seller's market. You're going to have to moderate um, your approach to that seller because if you're the only one that's hitting them with the truth stick, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to get the listing. That's the tough part of a transitioning market. Right. That's where you have to know how to pre-qualify. That's where you're going to have to have <gasps> skills. This is not like, this is, this is not the market from, you know, two years ago, completely different. And again, don't be intimidated or overwhelmed. Be excited because you can learn all of these things. And, but when, once you do learn all these things, think about the power you're going to feel when you are in conversation with folks and you're able to say things and do things. You want to know how to differentiate yourself in the, in the marketplace. It's not your branding. It's not your marketing. It's you and the services you provide to other people, especially in times like these. Well, I, <clears throat> excuse me. I am a little bit concerned though. Can I tell you why? Here's the thing. 
Today we talked about lack of communication. That's fairly easy to fix. But we also talked about all these complications with lenders' letters or screwed up lenders' letters, not being specific about sellers' concessions. What even is that? Escalation clauses, escape clauses, appraisal waivers. So my concern is this. I hope that when you get stuck, you're not weird about asking questions and getting help. Right. And I hope that whomever you are asking has the answers, but I am concerned because it's not just sales agents and brokers, but it's also lenders. It's, you know, it's brokers, it's office managers, transaction coordinators don't know about any of this stuff. This is why our premier coaching sessions are so hot right now. It's because you guys have questions about this stuff. I just got this escalation clause. Should I just reject it? I've never seen anything like that before. Well, is it your only offer? Maybe you shouldn't go around rejecting stuff like that. You're costing yourself time and money. You're potentially harming your relationship with your seller if you don't get the right answers. This is why we have experienced coaches to answer these questions. And sometimes it'll be something that's, you know, maybe off the cuff. We'll find you the answer. We'll direct you to the right place to get valid answers. That's my biggest concern is that mainly because I see them talking online and it's like, well, I mean, let's people give, don't know the answers. Let's give them a filter. If you've been in the business only in the last 15 years and everyone you're going to for advice has only been in the business for the last 15 years, you need to upgrade who you're going to for advice because they're not going to know anything different than this hot seller's market that we've all been experiencing. And sometimes there's legitimately like, I've seen some really bad advice. Yep. You know, I've seen things like, because anybody asked for some of this stuff that you guys have never seen, that it's just automatically rejected. Right. Even if it's over list price, because they asked like for a seller to contribute $3,000 towards closing costs. Why? Because the perception is if a buyer's asking for closing costs, they must be a weak buyer. When in fact, they're a really smart buyer who not only came in over list price, but also is asking for a little something to help buy down their interest rate, which makes them a valid buyer for your property. Do you see how you, you kind of miss the point in some of these? And that's my biggest concern is I think that part of the reason that we're seeing 4 million or less sales is because of some of these mistakes where houses should be selling that sometimes aren't or are not selling fast enough or for enough money for the seller. Well, like we started out today talking, Julia, this, the transitioning markets are the hardest markets. They are, the, absolutely. The, and here's really what it comes down to. Like, I remember when Julie and I started selling real estate and we would screw something up. I mean, we <laughs> screwed up stuff constantly. We sold over 100 homes our first full year in real estate, 103 with our pendings. But we'd make mistakes. And we'd make a mistake sometimes. It would cost us thousands, ten thousands. It doesn't matter. Yep. And I remember we'd call up our broker and we'd explain what it was. And, and this is all Roy would say, well, how much did that mistake cost you? Or he'd say, well, you won't do that one again. And he goes, that's an expensive education. I mean, he loved it. That was hit. his coaching. That was his coaching and training, right? That's how we learned. But we were learning quickly. We were making the mistakes only once. And then we realized, well, we have to, you know, learn faster. And we started going, going out of our way to... Uh, get advice and, and information you know, from people you that, learn, right? that were qualified to actually pass it along. And we also learned from top producing agents. But you know how we really truly learn? By making a hell of a lot of mistakes. So the old saying is, right, a smart man or woman learns from their mistakes. A brilliant man or woman learns from the mistakes of others. The problem with this market is it's too expensive to make mistakes. Yeah. It's too expensive. You'll lose revenue. You'll lose reputation. You'll lose, you know, perspective, you know, downrange deals because those buyers and sellers won't have any faith and confidence in you. And then you'll, you know, fail out of the business. Well, your average commission is 10 grand. That $10,000 is an expensive mistake to make. Yeah, for sure. You know? I mean, I remember some of the stupid mistakes we made. We ended up having to like, I don't even bore you guys. That could be a totally well, separate but, show. But the point that you're making is that these mistakes, if the deal even sticks together at all, 
Many times it's the agent who is paying for that mistake. Well, that's, those are the ones. Yeah. I mean, I'm remembering you and I having to uh, buy refrigerators and buy microwaves. Microwave. And I remember having to, you know, you and I would uh, just, we would not negotiate out something. And like, I remember one in particular where frankly, we originally uh, penned our ultimate addendum mm-hmm. where we had, we were the fifth deal on a whole bunch of home sale contingencies mm-hmm. and the buyer agent that put her buyer in contract on our listing. It was a sweet listing, perfect, everything. And she did not have a home sale contingency in her contract. And, uh, and Julie and I trusted her, frankly, and we accepted, ex- uh, accepted the lender's letter. What we didn't realize was that the, uh, homes, the contract was contingent on financing, which we accepted, but the financing was contingent on a home sale. So what she did is she, in her contract, did not write the homes, the, you know, this purchase is contingent on a home sale. She said the purchase is contingent on financing, yet the financing was contingent on home sale. And Julie and I weren't sophisticated at the time to realize that we should have been actually validating that the financing wasn't contingent on the sale of anything. And all these things, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. we've had so many, like we had one where it was similar to that. They had to sell Persian rugs in Iran. One of the, I remember the first year in our business, we had somebody who's in this, we are on the listing side whose deal fell apart because uh, they didn't, they weren't able to successfully sell. I'm not making this up a beer can collection. Oh, I remember how excited I was the first time we got an all cash offer. All cash, I mean, it's pretty common right now, but it hasn't always been that way. And I'll never forget, it was a, uh, the condo in Ontangi Forest that sat on the river. Okay. And we were so excited because we accepted this cash offer. And then we get a call like two days before closing. Oh, no, we're going to have to extend it. They can't close. Well, how can you not close a cash offer? Guess what? It was contingent on a divorce settlement where cash was involved and it hadn't actually settled yet. Exactly. Well, who knew you were supposed to ask about that stuff? <laughs> Expensive lessons. <laughs> you, know? you know, that's where the ultimate addendum comes from. So what we did is we took all these lessons and more, obviously, and we wrote the ultimate addendum and the ultimate addendum used on the buyer. If you're a buyer's agent or a listing agent, just to protect yourself just to make it so the addendum is the one asking the hard questions, mm-hmm. not you. And it's say it will save you so much time and frustration. And you're also going to be making your marketplace better, too, with forcing other agents to become more skilled well, as well. That's the thing. So please do not be nervous or afraid to ask questions when you see something unusual in somebody else's offer or a contract or, or maybe in the MLS you see something unusual. Ask questions. That's okay. That's why we have coaching. Don't be weird about it just because you haven't seen it before. Ask our coaches questions. Be careful otherwise. Make sure you're yeah. validating who you're going to for advice. All right, guys. In the meantime, thank you for keeping this number one listen to daily podcast for real estate professionals in at least the United States. It's our pleasure and our honor to be your daily real estate coaches. Have a fantastic day. We'll talk with you on the show tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.